Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Now, we get on the air because of the engineering skills of Alan Dempsey. Uh, He's good at it. And Andrew Herdliska is the producer, and he's good at it. And they put the show together for us. We welcome Dr. Wesley Wildman uh, to the show. He's in Boston. He's a professor at Boston University, editor of Beauty in the Ordinary, an inspiring collection of readings and meditations for Lent or any time. Dr. Wildman, welcome to Orlando. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Pat. It's lovely to be with you and your audience today. Wesley, I'm fascinated. Uh, you're, you're from Australia. How did you end up in the United States, and how did you end up in Boston, and how did you end up at Boston University? I wanted to study philosophy and religion at some point as a young man in Australia and realized that I couldn't find a good doctoral program in Australia, so I started looking in the United States and in Europe for a good doctoral program, and I wound up in California doing a PhD, and it's while I was doing a PhD that I got a job as an associate pastor of a church there and met Sam Lindemann, the author of the Meditations in Beauty and Ordinary. And after that, I thought I'd be going back home to Australia, but as it turns out, I, I got a job at Boston University teaching philosophy, theology, and ethics, and uh, stayed. Oh, Wesley Wildman is with us. Wesley, tell me about this collection of readings, Beauty in the Ordinary. What's the background here? The background really has to do with my relationship with the person who wrote the meditations. Sam Lindemann, this uh, giant pastor and famous preacher in Arizona and California, uh, he was my senior colleague when uh, we were helping to run a church in Piedmont, California, up in the hills there around Oakland in the Bay Area, and he wrote these meditations towards the end of his life, as it turned out, and I edited them at the time without any illustrations and shared them and the readings that he'd chosen to go along with them with his friends and followers. And it was a, it was a precious memento of Sam, and it struck me then that these meditations had huge potential to affect other people. So since then, I've been looking for an opportunity to work them up, but in an illustrated form that looks like a coffee table book so that other people could participate in them, and that's really where it got started. Wesley, I want you to uh, explain the 40 days of Lent and uh, and, and what, what you're saying here. Just explain, uh, for example, first day, repetitive regrets, second day, what is real, third running away from it all. I I want you to dive into all that for us. Well, let's start with Lent. There are some parts of Christianity that don't really do Lent. Uh, I grew up in one of those. Lent wasn't a big thing for us. But if you're a Catholic or an Anglican or some kind of evangelical Christians, Lent's a really big deal. It's supposed to be the, the weeks leading up to Easter. So they stretch from Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter. And it's supposed to be preparing for the Easter events of the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection on Easter Sunday and all of that. And because that's got an element of tragedy to it, the whole Lenten season is about trying to build up virtues, maybe trying to break some bad habits or trying to start some new ones. I've spent my whole life working to become an intellectual and specializing in certain things. And, And you worked your tail off becoming a great basketballer and businessman. There are other kinds of things we can work on too, things having to do with moral character and our courage and so on. And that's the sort of stuff that people can work on in Lent. And each day in Lent, there's an opportunity in a book like this to pause. You take a few minutes, you read the readings, you read the Bible verses, and then you read the meditation. And you think about the theme of the day, and you do that each day. So that on that first day that you mentioned repetitive regrets, that's about the habits that are so difficult for us to break. And there's a beautiful excerpt from Annie Dillard's Holy the Firm, and then there's some Bible readings and 
incredible photographs and then a meditation on repetitive regrets about how difficult it is for us to break some habits. And that's the theme of the day. And so if you read it, you meditate on that, and the next day you move on to another theme. Um, that's the point of Lent, I suppose, uh, when this book is your guide for it. Wesley Wildman is our guest from Boston. Uh, we're talking about his book, Beauty in the Ordinary. Uh, I, I've handpicked uh, some of these uh, topics, Wesley. And uh, uh, for example, uh, number 16, what is love? Uh, can you uh, talk to us about that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think um, the last year, and especially political stresses, have put this into a very sharp contrast. Love, according to many parts of the Christian tradition isn't just a feeling, it's a decision, it's an orientation, it's a behavioural commitment to other people. And this uh, loving one another, including loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us is so difficult, particularly when we're talking about political disagreements or other things like that, and it's just so easy to get our passions inflamed. It's so difficult to remember that we have in common with all of these people things like loneliness and sadness and exuberant joy and love of our children. And in fact, this Lent, one of my main commitments is going to be concentrating on what all human beings have in common, these little pieces of life, like love and sadness. And Anyway, as I do that, I hope to become better at loving uh, everyone in this decision way, not just having feelings, but being positively oriented, determined to understand the other person. That's really what Day 16 is trying to get us all to do. Wesley, number 18. Here's another one I want you to explain to us. The best things in the worst times. Uh, what's yes. what's that mean? Uh, there's, a, there's a great story behind this. The there's this guy who lived way back in the 17th century who wasn't at all happy about uh, uh, the Protestants taking over England and it was dangerous to be a Catholic at that time. And this guy got in all kinds of trouble. Even as a young man, he was tossed into prison and it, it was tough for him. But in that time, he built a chapel on the property that he controlled and dedicated that chapel to what he took to be the real meaning of England. So it was a political statement, but it was tough for him. He died very young um, but and spent much of the time in prison. But uh, at, the t- at the same time, he struggled to do what he thought was the right thing. But inscribed into the stone at the front of that chapel uh, is a beautiful, beautiful saying, uh, which includes this phrase, how wonderful it is to have done the best things in the worst times. I think it's a, a comment on the fact that you can't just do good things when you want to. You have to practice. You have to cultivate the virtue of being good all the way through your life so that when those really hard times come, you don't collapse. You can still be good. You can still do the best things in the worst times. That's what I'm getting out of that thing from Sam Here's another topic that I find very interesting, facing your mortality. Mm. What what do you tell us there? Uh, Sam was getting older as he wrote these things. He had some health scares. So I think at that moment, he's trying to explain to his readers how brutal it can be to suddenly become aware that you're not going to live forever, that you really could die tomorrow, that some disease could get you or there could be a terrible accident. And facing our mortality is uh, one of the fundamental pieces of life. It's one of the deepest things we all have in common. He wanted us to be able to do that with a confidence born out of Christian faith. That's not easy to come by, though. It's so easy, I think, for people just to put off thinking about their own death. When you do think about your death, though, it changes your priorities. And I'll tell you one little story about that. When I was a young man and busy working on my career, my children would come up and see me at the computer and I'd want to do something. And I'd say, just a minute, let me finish this sentence. Until one day, 
I realize that's not what I want. Uh, when I'm on my deathbed, what I want is to have beautiful memories of my beloved wife and my children. And so this is the precious stuff. So that's what I mean by reorientation of priorities. After that, whenever they came up into my office space, I would immediately stop what I was doing, even if it was in the middle of the sentence, and turn around and face them and let them see my whole body. And if they wanted to play a game of chess, I'd go and play with them. My work would wait. My work would wait. I could come back and do that later. But I think this is the type of reorientation of priorities that comes when we face our own mortality. Now, <clears throat> Wesley, we need to take a break, and then we're going to come back. My guest is Dr. Wesley Wildman. He's in Boston talking about his book, Beauty in the Ordinary. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, we'll be right back. We are visiting with Dr. Wesley Wildman. Uh, He's in Boston, uh, the editor of Beauty in the Ordinary. Uh, Wesley, we're uh, uh, talking about some of these uh, topics here in the 40 Days of Lent. Here's another one I want you to expand on, growing old gracefully. Uh, I want to hear about this. Yes, it's day 34, growing old gracefully. Well, honestly... uh... I'm about to turn 60 years old. I'm a bit shocked by that. I mean, I feel like I'm 30 still. Uh, my mind is feels better than it was when I was 30, but my body might be getting a little older than 30, I suppose. How am I going to approach my own aging? Am I going to be shy about it or scared of it? Am I going to drop into denial about it? How am I going to deal with it? The challenge about, about aging, I think, is to find a way to make it beautiful, to find a way to make it graceful, to make your life beautiful for other people. I've, I've watched you, Pat, as you give your motivational speeches and it strikes me that you're trying to grow old gracefully. You might have some thoughts about this as well. Mm-hmm. What would you say about growing old gracefully? Stay active. Stay involved. Stay active. Uh, keep, keep pursuing your passions. Stay in shape physically. Um... Hang, hang with young people. Uh, stay on top of the news. Uh, eat, eat properly. Uh, enjoy your life. Be good to people. Yeah. How's that sound? Stay close to the uh, Lord. Stay close to the Lord. Uh, you know, sounds beautiful. Hold, hold, hang tight onto Him. So, uh, let's move to the next topic. Yeah, the will of God. That's day 36. Uh, I'm curious. Fill us in. Well, Sam Lindemann was a Presbyterian, and all Presbyterians have been influenced by John Calvin, a Reformation theologian. Most people know about Calvinism, I suppose, if they're Christians. This was a, um, a pretty tough kind of theology, in a way, because it said that God's will is the most important thing there is. It's more important even than our will. So we think we do things, but ultimately God's the one who matters. So we only do things if God lets us do things. That means that God's will is over everything else. That's that's tough to absorb because it makes us feel as though our own decisions don't really matter that much. That's always presented a puzzle. But there's something very profound in that for Christians. I think they need to sit down and think about how important it is to say that God is more important than they are. This is really, I think, what worship means, is to acknowledge that God is worthy of worship, and that when you think of God in that way, it really does change the way you think about your own life. It relativizes your anxieties and your concerns, and, and it helps you, I think, resolve to accept what God's will is for you in trust, in hope, in faith. So, uh, this uh, this is a theme that you see in a lot of different Presbyterian writers as they try and process the ideas that they see in John Calvin's theology. Now, <clears throat> Wesley, here's another topic I want you to talk to us about. It's number 40 on keeping on, keeping on. 
<laughs> I love that title, On Keeping On Keeping On. Yes. It's, it's really good. Um, I tell you, this pandemic gives us something to think about when it comes to persistence and resilience. But I how exactly are we supposed to keep it up? I'm going bananas, and I'm one of the fortunate whose life doesn't change all that radically because of the pandemic. I can transition to working at home fairly well. But for a lot of other people, it's a lot worse than that. So the great puzzle is uh, what are we supposed to charge ourselves up with? What are we supposed to energise ourselves with so that we can keep on keeping on? And I think Sam's idea there is the idea is to trust God more and stop trying to control everything. Try and do something positive and then leave the rest to God. He thinks that type of trusting in God causes us to build up our willingness to keep moving, to keep trying, because we don't have to control every last thing. That's really the issue there. Now, the really super powerful people, maybe... Um, maybe people like you, Pat, even, we're used to controlling a lot of things. But honestly, there's a lot in life that we don't control. We're just lucky about it or unlucky. And allowing that to be, not trying to control that, causes us to be calmer, causes us to be more peaceful and allows us to save our energy for persisting, just trying to do what we know is right and leaving the rest of God. Dr. Wesley Wildman is our guest. He's in Boston, editor of Beauty in the Ordinary. Uh, Wesley, I want to swing over to the Sundays in Lent. There are uh, seven of them. The first one, first Sunday in Lent, the process of taming. Uh, explain that to us. What's that mean? Yeah. Let, let me just say uh, that, that quite often in Lent, the Sundays are treated as exceptions. So some people in Lent, they want to give something up. They won't have any chocolate or they'll give up caffeine or... Something, whatever they want to do for Lent, they might do that. But they give themselves a holiday on Sunday. The six days of the week, they don't drink any coffee, but on Sunday they can have a cup of coffee. So that means that Lent often skips Sundays. But if you want to do this exercise on Sundays too, then Sam provides you with meditations for Sundays. And that means that there are 50 meditations in the book so that you can use it also in Advent or at other times of the now, the process of taming, there's a very interesting idea there having to do with friendship. Um, uh, to me, there's something about friendship that's super interesting when it's close. And not so close friendship isn't so difficult. There's nothing really hugely transformative about it. Two people hang out together, they have fun, maybe they've got something in common, they have a common activity or whatever it might be. But if people really get intimate, friends in a marriage, for example, or really, really close friends, there's something else that happens. It's much more deeply transformative. There's something to do with really exposing yourself to another person and becoming reshaped because of your love of that person and your appreciation for them. And that's one of the ways that you can think about being tamed, tamed in such a way that you can become known and less protective and less aggressive about hiding yourself and more able to be present to another person. So Sam ties that idea of being tamed to really deep friendships, which I really love that idea. I found that in my own friendships. That's definitely true as I move through the processes of becoming more intimate, more close to people. I see myself uh, stopping the protection of myself and letting more of, my, of myself be seen and understand that I have to cope with the other person's difference and strangeness as well. It's a beautiful process, and anyway, it's a kind of being tamed, I think. Uh, beautiful job. Wesley uh, is, is, is explaining to us the Sundays in Lent. Second Sunday in Lent, Wes, the salt of the earth, not the honey of the hill. What does that mean? Well, you've, um, you pick up, you, you anyway, uh, probably most of your audience as well is going to pick up the reference, the biblical references there. There's uh, um, something to be said for being salty, not just sweet in our behavior. 
There's something to be said for telling the hard truth. There's something to be said for locking our behaviour into good patterns so that we are truly loving all the time, even when it's difficult, not just trying to make other people feel happy. So that's salt versus honey. That's, that's been a really important point for me. One of the things I've learned as a teacher as I'm dealing with my students, I'm mostly teaching in seminaries, I'm dealing with people who want to become ministers, who want to teach ministers. So they, these folk, uh, they, they need to learn a lot. There's stuff they need to learn. And I want them to be happy. I want them to like me, but I also want them to learn. And there's often a tension between those two things. I have to learn not to just be nice to them and make them like me. I have to tell them the truth and help them figure out how to be better. I think the same is true in coaching. The same is true in any form of human excellence. Now, let's, let's move to the third Sunday in Lent. There is no separation. Explain that to us, Wesley. Yeah, that's a... That particular... Uh, day is, a, is accompanied by a bunch of readings which are incredible. Uh, Sam loved books, not just the Bible, but other books as well, and he chose readings to go along with his meditations. Those readings were seriously uh, moving excerpts from books that had been important to him that inspired his preaching and pastoral work. So there is no separations accompanied by a bunch of readings which are so beautiful, it's really worthwhile slowing down. But those of you, those of your audience who know the Bible well will recognize the connection to Romans as well, where there's no separation. He talks about, uh, Paul, St. Paul talks about the fact that there's nothing that can separate us from God. So this is the, this is the uh, deep challenge for us. It's easy to cope with life when it's all going well. But when things fall apart, when someone we love dies, maybe they died from COVID or something, then we're face-to-face with the limits of our resources. At that point, we need some type of comfort. And the greatest comfort there is is to know that there's no separation between us and the ultimate meaning that there is in God. It's incredibly comforting. It's empowering and it enables us to tolerate levels of pain that we might not be able normally to manage. And once again, this is something that we have in common as human beings. We all experience tremendous pain at different times of our life. And knowing that there's this source of comfort in faith, I think, is tremendously important. Now, uh, let's dive into uh, the fourth Sunday in Lent. Uh, Mysterium... Tremendum. Uh, boy, you're going to have to unravel that for us, Wesley. Well, yeah, Mysterium Tremendum is a beautiful phrase if you happen to be into Latin. In English, it just means a tremendous mystery. But what we're talking about, I think, is that uh, whatever God is, God is going to be beyond our total comprehension. I think we should find that company. There's this book of Job in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. The book of Job has this story about poor Job suffering and fighting with his friends who say he should repent. And then Job says, I never did anything wrong. Why should I repent? And they keep fighting and fighting chapter after chapter after chapter. And then towards the end of the book, God appears out of this giant whirlwind, this absolutely incomprehensible, threatening storm. And silence, silence Job's friends, silence Job, and speaks, but obviously in a way that we can't possibly comprehend. I think part of faith has to be about not just making God comprehensible, but acknowledging that God might be beyond our comprehension. To actually accept that is something that mystics have always done, and I think every Christian needs to learn how to do it. And there are pieces in the Bible that really help us with that, and that passage in Job is one of them. Anyway, mysterium, tremendum, tremendous mystery. I think that's the way I love to think about God. And, and now <clears throat> let's uh, dive into Passion Sunday. Don't neglect the blood. Mm. Sam's an interesting character. He was a very opinionated person in a certain way. He's very gentle. 
despite being six or seven or something. He was very gentle, but he was very opinionated and aware that his opinions might not always fit with other people. So, for example, he used to say there's no dispute in taste. People just like what they like and they don't like what they don't like. And he was very aware of the problem and thought that perhaps people might not like all of his meditations. And this this is one of those that he was worried about. Focusing on the blood of Jesus, which was spilled in his crucifixion, can seem really normal to people in some parts of Christianity. For example, Catholics would normally be used to something like that. And some conservative Protestants would think of being washed in the blood, but there's a lot of Christians for whom the whole idea of blood, it's all a bit gooey, it's a bit gory, it's a bit horrible. The message of that day, if you can get past the, the problem with the blood being so, so prominent in it, is that we have to remember that there's a sacrifice that's at the root of passion, of the passion. It's not just all, all good and light and love, is it? There's, there's a torture and a murder, and it is really horrible. And that horrible part of the process is a measure of the problem that we've got with sin, the, a measure of exactly how large the solution needs to be to deal with this problem. Dr. Wesley Wildman has been our guest, editor of Beauty in the Ordinary. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Dr. Wesley Wildman, our guest uh, in that first segment, talking about his book, Beauty in the Ordinary. Uh, He was in Boston. Well, we swing out now to Berkeley, California. Dr. Ambrose Carroll is there. Senior pastor at the Church by the Side of the Road in Berkeley, CEO of Green the Church. Uh, Dr. Carroll, wonderful to have you. How are you? Oh, doing great today. Thank you so much for having us uh, all the way from the West Coast. My pleasure to be in conversation with you this morning. You have Florida roots, don't you? Tell me about your time in Florida. Oh, thank you. Yes. So my dad was uh, what we like to call an itinerant Baptist preacher, which means he pastored from uh, North Carolina, Louisiana roots, uh, pastored in Southern California in Santa Santa Ana in Orange County, and then uh, up to Oakland. But as a part of the National Baptist Convention, he always sent young men and women to Florida Memorial College at the time in Miami, one of our Baptist colleges. And so me and my two older brothers, uh, now a few nephews and nieces, all attended Florida Memorial in Miami. And I was a member of New New Birth Baptist Church uh, there. Uh, And I have a brother who now, Ben Carroll, who pastors the uh, Greater Antioch Baptist Church in West Palm Beach. So Florida is in my blood. Uh, Doctor, you have created a national campaign, Green the Church. Uh, yeah. can, can you explain that? What's that all? What's that mean? Yeah. So um, you, you know, again, uh, you know, my dad, I tell you, Baptist preacher from the great state of Louisiana. You know, African Americans began to migrate after the forties during the war, and a lot of the things. My dad was actually an agriculture major attending uh, Southern University in uh, Louisiana there. And we just come from a people who always had our hands uh, in the soil. You know, we grew up uh, our generation, some on plantations and some, uh, 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 you know, after the Great Depression and many uh, share sharecroppers. So we have an affinity and a history, both of being pastors, and farmers. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Green the Church is really an attempt, especially with a lot of our brothers and sisters in Detroit, Chicago, Oakland, who didn't get an opportunity to go home in the summers and are really living urban lives and are disconnected from Southern and agricultural roots. And so as a part of our faith, as a part of our tradition, um, it's an attempt to connect those histories in theology, and, you know, just to, uh, you know, keep up our biblical 
uh, uh, reality of being stewards of everything that God has given us, stewards of, of the earth. So that's it pretty much in a nutshell. Uh, Dr. Carroll, I want you to talk to us about what the church means to the black community. And, and what are you seeing with young people uh, particularly? Are they involved with your church? Are you concerned about that? Yeah, definitely. Very much concerned about that, which is why I think, um, you know, things like this that meet young people where they are is vastly important. Do Green the Church, we are really telling stories of where the African-American congregation is uh, kind of weaving those pieces together. We're going to have a conversation in February with, uh, with a congregation in Chicago, uh, Trinity, that has purchased a 40-acre brownfield, and they have one program that we're interested in, that they are teaching young people how to plant trees. And mm. so they're meeting young people where they are in urban environments, and, you know, young people showing up on Sunday morning, singing in the choir and the worship board, as I did growing up, um, uh, we have lost some of that in the black community. But through programs like this, we're reaching out to young people, meeting them where they are, sharing the gospel with them, um, and have them doing things in their neighborhoods that are effective and bringing them closer to Christ. Uh, I want you to do uh, expand on this for us, Reverend. Um, mm. th- th- this whole issue of the inner city church having an explicitly environmental emphasis and an outreach arm that offers green job training and placement. Can you uh, expand on that? That sounds uh, rather yeah. inc- incredible. What, what's that mean? Well, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, things are always changing and moving, you know, and in America there are a lot of jobs that, you know, that can be shipped off across, you know, across the world basically. But in terms of taking care of home, in terms of infrastructure, um, you know, these are things that are going to be needed in our community. And we want to make sure that our young people um, have what it takes to participate. Um, I come from, you know, a community in the 70s and the 80s where a lot of us were told, go to college, go to college. But the reality is a lot of us left home, left places where we were, went to other cities, other places, and um, and really didn't make sure that those who were left behind had the kind of work that they needed to survive and to strive. So, you know, I often say black, you know, the black community may not own a lot of skyscrapers downtown and downtown areas, but we own a lot of faith buildings. We own a lot of churches. Uh, Grandmom and granddaddy sold sweet potato pies and fried chicken and had note-burning services. And all of those faith buildings, all those churches have to be retrofitted. You know, I'm in Berkeley, and they say Berkeley has to be 100% clean energy by 2030. That means that our gas oven that we worked probably for 10 years to save up and purchase will be obsolete. we got to put it out on the curb. And so we have to figure out how to retrofit these buildings, these churches, and we want to train our young people and employ them uh, in agriculture, in growing food, but also in building efficiency. Uh, we want to train them in renewable energy. Uh, we want to showcase them not only the ones that go to college, but the ones that are ready to work with their hands um, and to, to do the work uh, of God and of community. So we are connecting with institutions, organizations all across the country, trying to make sure that as the kind of new jobs come online that our young people, you know, even when it comes to being involved with the uh, unions and things of that nature, that they know how to navigate that. Because in a lot of instances, the school systems uh, themselves have, back, have closed some of those pieces out where there used to be a handoff between the school and low local industry. And so the church, I believe, has to help fill that gap. Uh, The Reverend Dr. Ambrose Carroll is our guest senior pastor at the Church by the Side of the Road in Berkeley, California, CEO of Green the Church. Uh, Doctor, I want you to uh, tell us about your church, uh, how it started, and what what the mission is. Tell us about your church. Oh, yeah, the Church by the Side of the Road. I would not sit in the scorner's seat nor 
hurl the cynic's ban, but let me live in my house by the side of the road and be a friend of man. Mm. Uh, that's a quote by a poet named uh, Foss, I believe. Uh, our founding pastor in 1956, Alexander uh, Jackson. Uh, Alexander Jackson's quite a character. He played with Count Basie's band, and, uh, played ragtime, played in Harlem, and uh, toured in, in Europe. His dad uh, was the pastor of the New Hope Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, the oldest black Baptist church in Dallas. And his brother became the pastor. His brother's name was Maynard Jackson. And Maynard Jackson became the pastor of Friendship Baptist Church in Atlanta, yes. uh, where Morehouse College was started. And then his son became the first mayor, I got first it. black mayor of Atlanta. I got so it. this is Maynard Jackson's uncle. Uh, he came to California, graduate of Bishop College uh, of the tradition, but he founded a church. Uh, he had a dream uh, of a church uh, that could be small enough that could really be communal uh, and yet powerful enough to really make a difference in the lives of people in the community. And that church was founded as a non-sectarian community church. In 1950, the white community church and the black community church came together. And so when I talk about community church, it's kind of like what you see on the, the little house on the prairie. So uh, I think they would call me Parson Carroll and not Pastor Carroll. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> it's a congregation for all of those, you know, if you're Catholic, you still need your priest. But if you're Protestant, you know, Baptist or Church of God in Christ or Presbyterian or Lutheran, then you could be a part of the community church. And so that church was founded this year will be our 65th church anniversary, founded in 1956 in Berkeley, California. And uh, so this beautiful uh, congregation, beautiful people uh, that, that came together and uh, move this this community along. This is I'm going into my ninth year as senior pastor. Dr. Carroll, I want you to talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, what, mm. he, what he means to this country, what he means to the church, what he means to the black community. Can you expand on that? Well, uh, sure, to the best of my of ability. I was born in 1969, but of course my generation got a a great dose of MLK growing up. Um, you know, my generation, the stories that were told, it seemed like civil rights and unrest was so far, so long ago, and that we were moving in a world where all of those things, uh, conflicts and unrest would be things of the past. But Martin Luther King represents the civil rights movement, which was a large movement, many organizations, uh, blacks, whites, Hispanics, uh, Jewish individuals, many individuals moving, uh, just kind of talking about uh, what it means in America, what this thing, um, you know, all men were created equal. What does that mean, and how can we begin to see that in policy? Uh, coming up uh, and admiring the civil rights movement, I was always looking for what would be the large tent movement of my generation. So when I read Van Jones' book, The Green Job Economy, I thought to myself, wow, one of my contemporaries has articulated for us what would be the large big tent uh, issue of our day, and that is the health of the planet, because all of us live and thrive on this uh, beautiful earth, and we need everybody, and we need everything. And I think that, uh, uh, that our Bible uh, is rich uh, with story and narrative that talks about what God has created and has left us to be stewards of it so that we look at stewardship in general in our churches, our own individual stewardship, and being our responsibility uh, to everything on this planet and taking responsibility for it. So that's uh, Martin King for, for, for me who, who, who died in Memphis, Tennessee, helping the sanitation workers. Uh, that was an environmental issue, uh, an environmental justice piece that these men uh, we're working under such terrible conditions as human beings, as people of a human family. And King wanted to correct that and gave his life there. It, it means a lot 
uh, to me as it does, uh, I believe, to the heart and soul of the nation. My guest is Reverend Dr. Ambrose Carroll, senior pastor at the church by the side of the road in Berkeley, California. How are you all dealing with the the COVID-19 in California, Doc? What's going on? Oh, my. I tell you, um, California is up and down. I think our governor just loosened some restrictions. We, we've been under, uh, under stay-at-home orders now for over six weeks, I believe, if not more, uh, before the end of the year. It's been up and down. For us at the church by the side of the road, pretty early, uh, we lost uh, three individuals in our congregation. One mm. is uh, Sister Bar- Barbara Hopper. Uh, her husband, Dr. Khan Hopper, worked at Tuskegee University, came to Cal, worked at Berkeley. Uh, beautiful family. She's a leading uh, individual in our community. Uh, was there uh, when we had Ash Wednesday last year. Came to an event on Saturday, went to Los Angeles with family and friends, contracted COVID, and we buried her in oh. this week. My guess oh, is, my. oh boy, that's sad. We got to take a break. Dr. Ambrose Carroll is our guest from Berkeley, California, <clears throat> and we'll be back. Just a reminder, <clears throat> you're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando, and we're always so pleased when you plug in with us. So stay with us, more with Dr. Carroll. But first, these important messages. My guest is uh, Reverend Dr. Ambrose Carroll from Berkeley, California, senior pastor at the Church by the Side of the Road in Berkeley. Before the break, uh, Doctor, uh, you mentioned the word stewardship. Uh, We hear that a lot, but I want you to explain that word to us. What does it really mean? Thanks, Pat. I, I think, um, you know, stewardship is, in my uh, terminology, is really about being responsible. It's really akin to discipleship um, itself. That as Christians, we are in a reciprocal relationship with a loving God. Um, God has saved us by God's grace, has brought us into uh, relationship uh, with himself and with everyone else. Uh, but as human beings on this planet, then we have a responsibility to tend to what God has created. We have a responsibility to nurture our young people as well as new believers, um, and we have a responsibility to tend and nurture everything that God has created. And so, you know, in church, we always talk about our stewardship campaign, whether that is giving a tenth of all that we have or whether it is um, what is, is our personal, what is our personal spiritual gifting and being stewards in our gifts. Uh, but we also talk about missions. And we, in our congregations, do a lot uh, of missions around the world, be that Africa or India. Uh, we're connected to um, organizations that help, and when we do that, uh, we help you know individuals in foreign lands to build systems. We help them with their water, with their irrigation. Uh, we help them to build homes. For instance, when when we go abroad and, and do missions, we do a lot of work uh, that is stewardship of the earth itself, and uh, we just want to make sure that that's not lost here at home. And, uh, you know, I, I have so many conversations that are in urban centers that give towards missions, but I want us to, to really understand what earth stewardship looks like even at home and not only abroad when we are winning souls. Doctor, I want you to expand on a topic that just <clears throat> breaks my heart. Uh, every mm-hmm. time I pick up the paper, I read the papers from around the country, I read about crime rising in New York City, and I read about yeah. I read about Chicago, where, yeah. where deaths never stop ending, and it seems most of it is black on black crime. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I want you to talk to us. I I, I, I need oh, you just to goodness, I need you just to explain wow. your feelings. Yeah. Oh, Pat, love. Let me tell you, 
Uh, we're in February. I lost my brother-in-law three years ago, February 14th, to gun violence in San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I, as I was with his children every holiday, we are still together. Um, uh, crime, I think, and loss. I think this word black-on-black crime is very interesting because most crime in America is um, is not across races, right? We don't have a lot of, 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 of kind of race war, or race crime, or blacks killing Hispanics or whites killing blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most crime, you know, <laughs> is, is within races. I think there's a stigma in the black community and the way, of course, that you read about it and the way that media portrays it that definitely lightens it up. But I will say that, you know, being on the bottom in society, in a certain caste, being uh, not only left powerless, but there's a game of foot that in, in this nation I live, you talk about Chicago, Oakland, where we live and where we've been allowed to live and how we live in community has been, um, has been kind of legislated to a certain point. I grew up in, in the 80s when crack cocaine and other things came to our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, our communities have been under siege, um, and a part of that um, uh, is this gang culture. Um, a lot of it that we get from mafia movies, right, that there are a lot of communities that have had this kind of mafia type of, you know, either the Italians or the Sicilians, and then we have this American culture that perpetuates this. Um, I think not only is it problematic, but it's something that has to stop. But I think, you know, somebody said we have great churches in Oakland, California, but our people didn't come to Oakland, California to have church. We came to Oakland, California to work. And we worked in the shipyards and we worked in the canneries uh, and individuals could have two or three jobs and people worked and prospered. Uh, in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, but in the 80s, the military was taken out of Oakland. A lot of the cannery jobs closed. A lot of jobs that went to African-American people were no longer there. And so we live in these places that things are a lot more complicated than they look on the surface. And I think if you look on the surface, um, you, you know, um, without the kind of patience that we need um, the human patience that we need to ask the question, what happened? Um, and if we don't stop long enough to ask the spiritual immediate question of what happened, uh, then we'll leave characters on people and we'll think that people have these large character flaws. But I think the same patience uh, that we look on our brothers and sisters that storm the Capitol, that we say, you know, well, what, what, what happened? Can we look at it? Can we take our time? Can we be patient? It is that same kind of loving, faith, grace kind of patience that we need with the African-American community and every other community when we see human beings acting in an in a inhumane way. Dr. Carroll, what is your message uh, to single mothers who are raising children by themselves? Lord, have mercy. Lord have mercy. Listen, I I think so. In our communities, we we are always very communal. Um, and my father, who was a Baptist preacher, died at the age of forty-four. My mother raised six children, sent them all to college and to graduate school, and she was an elementary school teacher. Somebody say now, uh, but she was able to do that because of the church and the faith community, uh, because God gave us fathers and mothers uh, and other people to love and guide us. Uh, the men of the church still taught me how to fish, still taught me how uh, to go over Sister Brown's house and build a gate. They still instructed me. They still made sure that I had work. And, and money in my pocket, so I wouldn't have to worry about selling drugs. I would say to single mothers and single fathers, find your church community. Find your community of faith. Raise your children in the 
mission of God. My guest is uh, Dr. Ambrose Carroll. Final word. We've got about a minute and a half, Doc. Um, What do you tell people who have an interest in becoming missionaries? Uh, what's, What's your word? Oh, my goodness. My word is to seek the voice of God. Uh, my word is that the world needs your voice and needs you, the gifts that God has given you. Uh, know that there's no time like today. Know that you may have to walk in darkness and never deny the light of God. Uh, this work that we do is needed. Uh, here's my statement that this is no time to play, to dream the drift. We have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle, for the struggle, I tell you, is the gift. Be strong. Give yourself to God. Follow godly leadership. Be in prayer for what God would have you to do for God in the world. And be a willing vessel, willing to go wherever God may send. My guest has been Reverend Dr. Ambrose Carroll, Senior Pastor at the church by the side of the road in Berkeley, California. Dr. Carroll, a real privilege to visit with you. Thank you so much for your time. Pat, it's been my pleasure. Blessings on you and all of your audience there in the great state of Florida. Thank you, sir. We will have a wrap-up right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Well, folks, we've had an interesting session here. Uh, Dr. Wesley Wildman, our guest in that first segment from uh, Boston, talking about beauty in the ordinary. And then Reverend Dr. Ambrose Carroll from out in Berkeley, California, CEO of Green the Church. Interesting chat with him. Well, as many of you may know, we're attempting to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. We have a website uh, OrlandoDreamers.com, OrlandoDreamers.com. Just go up there and check it out. Let us hear from you. Uh, what are your feelings? Do you like the idea? Would you be interested in season tickets someday? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. OrlandoDreamers.com. We'll be next, back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. That's where you're plugged in here on the new AM 990. And FM 101.5, the word, in Orlando. And above all, have a terrific week ahead. We'll see you next weekend.